Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Club. This is the place everyday real estate investors gather to share their best stories, biggest insights, and favorite tactics to grow a portfolio of cash-flowing properties in today's market. Here's your host, Gabe Peterson. All right. Welcome back to another episode of the Real Estate Investing Club, five days and counting until Christmas. I hope everybody out there is getting stoked. My favorite holiday. Another reason today rocks is because we have Aaron Chapman with us on the podcast. Aaron is from Security National Mortgage. He is a loan originator and he also is an investor with uh, assets um, you know, across the spectrum, really interested in single family and he'll go into the reasons why that is. Uh, but I'm super excited. Aaron, thank you very much for hopping on the show. Thanks for letting me come in and attack the eardrums of your listeners. There you go. Um, to get us started, why don't you uh, take us to your story? We always start with stories here. So uh, take us to the beginning. How'd you get started in real estate? Well, I'm always about telling stories. I think people learn better from stories personally. Oh, they learn better from getting their ass kicked, but not always do you want <laughs> that, to do that, that right? That yeah, is we, the, we, the lesson that you remember the most is the one where exactly. you got your you, ass you, 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 The scars always will tell you you have a story behind every scar, but I'd much rather just tell a story of you know of things and let people learn from that. So I grew up, you know, the cattle ranching thing in high school, and then from there was able to graduate high school through my halfway through my senior year, went to oil, work in the oil fields, then ran heavy equipment, drove truck, found myself in the mines of northern New Mexico in the late 90s with, uh, and I had a wife and an infant son back in Arizona. I come back and forth every every 13 shifts. I'd spend six days off, 13 days on. Well, oh, wow. when, when they shut down that mine, I had to go find another job. And I had a really what, uh, good resume. Really quick. What kind of mining was it? I'm just. Uh, we were uh, mining for what they call molybdenum. Have you ever heard of chromoly? No. Uh, so chromoly steel, it's uh, basically steel with chromium and molybdenum to make it a little bit stronger. Molly is also in Greece. It's an additive. Okay. And so you're, it's it's like a clay-like material that we were mining. And you would get, we'd get silver and gold and, and other other minerals out of it. But mainly molybdenum is what we were, we were mining for. So it's hard rock mine. We're underground drilling. In fact, there's a picture of it back behind me. You can barely make it out. Big old long... Uh, drill steel where we're drilling into the into the rock face 30 different holes six foot deep you load it with explosives step around the corner blow it up dig it out that sounds um, fun actually it sounds like a fun yeah. job <laughs> it was great several hundred feet underground play with explosives and you're it's in your manhandling everything the only equipment used was the loader to dig out the rock after you blew it up but everything else was done by hand with a 160 pounds of drill machines so you had to be a you had to become a Frickin' tank to yeah, do this job sure. day in and day out for 10 hour shifts. So I came back to Arizona looking for a job and I was overqualified for every damn thing I applied for. At least that's what they told me. Mm. Um, and it got to a point where we were getting in really, really dire straits where I was going to, I applied for a $10 an hour truck driving job to haul landscape rock. And on my way to go apply for that job, my wife would give me a coupon for free diapers because our, our account was overdrawn and we needed diapers for my kid who was like six months old. I got to that location. Went in and applied, met with the general manager, and he again told me the same BS of being overqualified. So at 23 years old, I'm walking off of that, that site, wiping tears from my eyes, thinking, how am I going to do this? And I'm climbing into my truck with that coupon, and I started my truck, started to drive towards the grocery store, and I got the gas light come on in my truck. I'd never driven on a gas light before, so I didn't know how long I could go. I hurriedly found a grocery store that had a gas station out front out in Chandler, Arizona. So pulled up to a pump, 
I took my debit card, which I knew was overdrawn, but I said to Crick Player, I swiped that card and I got a decline. I went through my truck, found a couple of coins. I locked the doors and I walked that grocery store parking lot for what, for what feels like a couple of hours to find enough change to get two gallons of gas so I can make it home. Gas back then, it was like 80 some odd cents a gallon. People still carried change. So it was possible to accomplish that. I couldn't accomplish that today. I was going to so say, that wouldn't work today. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. And the thing of it is, is I, I got to learn a very, very valuable thing in life. But it's at a time when, by the grace of God, was I had enough clemency to be able to learn it. At the time that I did. So go into the grocery store, find those diapers as I'm walking out, right? Head down, ignoring everybody. I heard my name called. I turned to face a guy who used to run the office at one of the companies I used to dig swimming pools for. And he asked me how things were. And I explained a little bit of what I just explained to you, but really, really glazed it because I didn't want to admit I was in that bad of shape. He said, hey, let's go to dinner. I'm like, dude, I, I can't afford dinner. He goes, no, I got a gift certificate to Red Lobster. So he took me and my wife out to Red Lobster a couple nights later. And that's where he shared with me the mortgage industry. He gave me the business card to a branch manager of a little broker shop. So I cut a foot off of my hair. I shaved. My mom bought me some business-like clothes, and I went and interviewed and got a job as a telemarketer in December of 1997. Then shortly after that, I got a job driving truck where I go to Sacramento and back every week, and that didn't work. I was trying to work three days in the office, drive to Sacramento and back. That sucked. And then uh, I went back to running heavy equipment, get up at 3 a.m., be at the yard by 4, be done by noon, be at the office by 2, work till 10 p.m., sleep four hours a night for a year before the rates went below 7% for an owner-occupied, and I took on enough new new business that I could actually quit and start working in the mortgage industry full-time late 1998. Wow, that's crazy, man. Um, anybody that works two jobs at once, I have a lot of respect for you because you know one job, um, I worked in the corporate world until uh, 2019-ish, or yeah, about 2019. It was only one job. I could only imagine adding another job on top of that. It would just... Uh, you know, it takes a lot of grit, um, but I'm sure, you know, through that experience, you learned a lot. It built you to who you are today. Um, and, you know, now you're you're doing well. You got your mortgage company. You're in real estate. So uh, every uh, like we said in the beginning, every time life kicks you in the face, it's a lesson that you learn and you take it on to the to the rest of, uh, of your life. That, and the person needs to just focus and be very, very stubborn about what they want because it's not going to be easy up front. That was not easy being a telemarketer. It wasn't easy trying to learn how to do loans. 20 some years later, I got ranked, you know, my industry, the loan originators, 1.1 million of us at the peak. I was wow. ranked number seven in the United States of that 1.1 million. Wow. Right now, when it comes to, when it came to the real estate investment side, I was ranked number one for, lend, for conventional lenders in the real estate investment space because I zeroed in and focused. Now, targeting real estate investment after the crash of 2000 was really, really difficult. I mean, I don't know what you were doing during 2008, but 2008, <laughs> so you're just graduating. I was yeah. I was still doing okay. There's a lot of, I was just focused on Arizona real estate. There's investors coming in, but I was going out of town on August 8th of 2008 on the Harley, trying to get my head clear for a three-day ride through the through the mountains. I got taken out in the first 15 minutes by a, by a 17-year-old driver at 80 plus miles an hour. Oh. I woke up in the hospital, mm. uh, the inability to walk, uh, only had one good limb, which was my left arm, and it, the impact uh, where it cracked my helmet open. It the impact was enough that it, but my memory would recycle every three minutes. So I had to come back to an obliterated industry, a memory that would that I'd have to train to come back, and I had to learn how to walk again, and then start over in an industry that was completely trashed. I lost all my real estate investments. I had a net worth of approaching about three to four million dollars. By the time I left the hospital, I have a net worth of negative one point five million with a four sixty credit score. So I crawled back. 
back from that to 2016 when I had saved 90 grand to buy investment real estate again. And instead of that, I went into the infinite banking strategy, put my money there into a life insurance policy, took the money from the life insurance policy, bought real estate investments, put the money back in there with the cash flows plus 10% of my income created this engine where now, you know, not only I do, you know, 60, 70 loans a month at my peak, I was 150, but now I could buy a house every other month if I want through my infinite banking policy. Um, I've got a family trust that's created where we were able to buy assets all across the country and my my children rent from the trust, not from anybody else developing ownership in the houses that they occupy. So I'm a very, very, very big into looking ahead for the future, not just my future, but the future of my grandchildren, my grandchildren's grandchildren, and how are we going to change that for them now? You'd mentioned how I am very, very bullish on single family housing. The reason I am more so than anything is because BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard are buying it up like mad. Jeff Bezos just created a fund himself to buy single-family rentals. If it's not that good of a deal, see, notice how everybody in our space, the little guy that could, that that's just barely got enough money to qualify for, for a single-family investment wants to buy another one, they're always thinking about buying apartment buildings. I get it. But our attention is being taken off of, the to me, what is the most valuable real estate yeah. asset out there, which is the single-family. Our children, I, I believe that we are being, not our, our, not our children, but our grandchildren are going to be turned into a con consumer, or excuse me, a subscription-based economy. If we don't stop that by buying investment real estate now, especially in the single family space for the future of our family, then we will basically usher in the uh, subscription-based economy for our grandkids and our great-grandkids. And when you say subscription-based economy, um, you're referring to, I mean, a lot of the things right now, your gym membership, Netflix, yada, yada, they're all subscription. And you're assuming you're lumping rent into a, you know, considering into that to be the, into the subscription, 100%. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's yeah. that's that's where they're headed with it. You know, the, the statistic that I heard, and I, I don't have any data to actually pinpoint this precise number, but it had been said, and I'd heard it said, uh, in some sort of form of authority or an economist or something to that effect, that the 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 hedge funds I just mentioned can control up to 60% of the single family housing by 2030 to 2035. Wow, that's crazy. That's alarming. If it's even remotely close to being true, that is very alarming. So when you're talking about the future of our families, and they will you know, look at the cost of housing, right? The affordability is completely off the charts low. Yeah. Then you get to the point of if you've got them paying cash and buying up all these houses and renting them back to to the uh, to the population, they get to control what happens with rents. Yeah. Right. And if they control enough of it, then people have zero control. Of rent. There's no there's no uh, competition for rents any longer. There's nobody dropping rents in certain markets as, hey, you're just going to pay it because you don't have a chance to own it yourself. So we have to own it. And that's why I'm going crazy just buying what I can and securing those assets, because I want to be sure that those future generations are taken care of. I am just screaming up and down to my real estate investors, take advantage of the prices now because they're only going up. I don't know if you've noticed or paid attention to or had not had anybody even offer to you the statistics on what the price of single family rentals did or single family houses did in 2023 when we had the highest interest rates we've seen since 1996. Yeah, it went up, right? Do you know how much? No. According to Kay Schiller, Black Knight and CoreLogic, it was 8.9%. Really? Wow. That's went insane. Up 8, 9%, essentially. 9%, basically. Yeah. Can you believe we saw that much increase in the highest interest rate spike that we had seen since 1996? So yeah, it tells actually, me, it tells I everybody, a, guys. Uh, um, a, uh, uh, I think it was like a meme or something um, that was, 
it wasn't a meme. It was some kind of like infographic or whatever talking about the millennial generation. Um, anybody who bought before 2020, uh, they are, you know, on average, they're paying about $1,500 for a mortgage. And anybody bought who bought after 2020, um, on average, we're paying about $4,000 for a mortgage. And uh, even in that environment, you know, it's still increasing 9%. That that blows my mind. It's it's ridiculous what we're looking at there. And, and the reason it's going up is because of the hedge funds buying the houses. They're yeah. pushing the prices up. That's why. If a person wants to get in on it, they have to get on it. And then what's also an interesting thing... A lot of people look at the interest rates going up as a negative thing. And yes, it can be negative considering your affordability and the price of housing. But what happens, and, and there are investors that I talk to say, well, I'll just wait till the rates go down. Okay, one, I don't believe they're going to go down much more than they already have. And I have charts to prove that. Secondly, or at least back up my thing. I can't say it's proof, but at least backs up my claim. Uh, secondly, what do you think the price of housing is going to do when the rates, if the rates go down? Right, go right up, <laughs> go right back up. When yeah, we, we saw interest rates environment again. That's yeah, that's yeah. Crazy. We you remember the three percent environment when somebody wanted to buy a house and they contacted a realtor. A realtor would say, "You need to be prepared to offer thirty to fifty thousand over list just to get in the game." Right? Oh, in Seattle, it was more than that. I saw houses go one hundred, two hundred. You know, in the in the pricier areas, one hundred, two hundred thousand above what they listed it at. I was like, that is insane. It's just, it's nuts. Under two hundred thousand above list, did they benefit at all from a lower interest rate? Yeah, definitely not. <laughs> they didn't. They prepaid the interest and then some by two hundred grand. I mean, it's so. What's amazing to me is how how people can't psychologically they really get messed up by this interest rate. And I have a question for you. I'm curious what your thought outcome, your thought is on it. Who benefits by the mass public being so interested in what the interest rate is? Who benefits from the interest rate? Um, I mean, banks is the only, is the primary beneficiary, I would think. Ouch. That it is true. It's the banking industry that generate that, that benefits the most. And a lot of it has to do with how often people refinance. If you look back in history, it's very, very, uh, you see people will refinance within every four to five years habitually is what it seems like. Cause they're programmed to think that the lower, when the interest rates go down a certain amount, you refinance, right? Well, the, where that benefits is when you start looking at, at the numbers. You know, I had a client come to me. He had bought a house at $120,000 loan. 47 months into his loan, he said, hey, the rates are low enough. I want to refinance. I told him, that, how much cash do you want? Are you going to reinvest it? What are you going to do? He goes, no, I just want to refinance and get a lower rate. I tried to talk him out of it because what I showed him is over that 47 months, he's now making his 48th payment. He paid almost just over $37,000 in principal and interest. But the balance of his loan had only dropped just over six thousand, so nearly thirty-one thousand dollars went just to interest in that window of time. Right, because the I couldn't table, convince yeah. him. He still refinanced it. He still added the cost on top of his loan to get the new loan that was within one hundred and two dollars of the original loan amount, and then his payment dropped. But he kept the same loan amount and it paid out that thirty-one thousand dollars of interest. Let's say he did it again in four years. Where is he going to be at? After 20 years, doing that four to five times, he'll have paid over $180,000 in payments, but his balance would have stayed exactly the same. That's why being worried about the interest rates is such an important thing to people is because they've been programmed to believe that it's an important thing. It is not. We live in a highly inflationary environment, do we not? Absolutely. Now, when you look at inflation, what is inflation doing to the value of the U.S. dollar every single year? Driving it down. Driving it down. So, quick little illustration. 1920s and before, they used to mint a $20 gold piece. 
You could walk into a department store, and I heard this said, I didn't walk into the department store, I'm not old enough to know this, but I heard it said, you could walk in and buy a hat, people were big into the fedoras or the, or the uh, what is it, the Indiana Jones style hat back then, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'd buy the hat, the suit, the shirt, the tie, the, the belt, the pair of socks, and the pair of shoes for that $20 gold piece. <laughs> now, fast forward to today, you can't even buy socks for 20 bucks, right. but you could buy all the stuff I just named with an ounce of gold. Why? Because an ounce of gold is over $2,000 in what they claim to be value. It's not. And what's interesting about this, the value of the gold has not changed. The value of the, the materials and the commodities that you'll purchase with has not changed. The instrument that we acquire those things with has changed, and that's the U.S. dollar because of the amount that's in, 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 that's in fluctuation or uh, uh, in uh, circulation. So what I try to educate folks on is that even though you're paying a principal and interest, you're never actually paying back what you borrowed when you paid over a 30 year window. And I've got uh, an illustration here where if a person bought a house for $200,000 and they put 20% down, they would finance 160,000 bucks. And at today's rate, they would pay $407,689.20 in actual payments on that house. And you add all the principal and interest up. But when you recalculate the dollar every time it leaves your hands, based upon an average rate of inflation of 8%, I know people are saying that the CPI is around like four. Don't listen to that. The CPI is only a measurement of specific things, not true cost of living. If you look at it, 8% is actually a low number to go off of. The When you start using 8% as a value to change the buying power of the U.S. dollar over time, you're only paying back $154,336.97 in actual dollar value. So you're paying back less than what you borrowed. That's why they want you to refinance every four to five years. Pay it while it's interest heavy. Never pay them any principal and never write it out because they're going to lose money the longer you take to do that. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, when you look at a, you know, a graph for an amortization schedule, the the first like three years is just all interest. It's all interest. You're not paying anything in principal. Um, which can be frustrating, you know, but that's why the banks have the big, the big buildings. They're, uh, they're the ones that, you know, are making all the money on this. Um, so my job is to educate the real estate investors, how to deal with the banking entity industry and use it for benefit. You can actually, by leveraging a house, you make more money leveraging it than you ever will by paying cash, but getting caught up in their refinance cycle, that psycho that psychology can actually cripple it. So that it's a double-edged sword. And that's where I coach them, give them the information. In fact, I have an app. You go to your app store, look up the QJO investment tool. The amortization table there will actually show you what you pay and what inflation adjusted numbers are. And I will, you know, I'll put in the show notes the uh, the links to the YouTubes that will uh, show people how to use it. Perfect. Um, yeah, I feel like the only the only real reason to refinance is if you're able to pull equity out and buy something that makes you more money um than what you're losing with the, with the uh with the interest rate um with you know having to go back in the amortization schedule and put all that interest um so yeah i mean i love all that i think you're 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 it's good that you're preaching the choir here but it's great it's great news for um everybody out there definitely i think it's good advice um for investors uh we are running down the the time unfortunately um this is a, a shorter podcast but before we move on I want to ask, you've mentioned a few things about um, structuring, uh, structuring your investments and all that kind of stuff. You mentioned your trust, you mentioned infinite banking. Um, so give us kind of the, you know, the 30,000 foot view, infinite banking, explain what it is, and then why did you put all of your investments in a trust? 
So infinite banking is more or less, instead of having a bank account to buy real estate, I bought a life insurance policy. Mm-hmm. And I can get a loan against that policy and use that money. And it's which it, what's cool about it is it's growing tax-free. It's also kind of protected because it's not my money on paper, but mm-hmm. I have access to that money. So the easiest way for me to look at this, guys, is I had 90000 Let me just explain where that started. I had ninety grand. I could have taken the money from my bank account and bought three houses. And then let's say I passed away the next day, got in a car accident. My, my family had three houses and an empty bank account. But by putting it into a life insurance policy at a $2.7 million death benefit, I was able to access within less than 30 days because I, you go to the right people, not just any insurance agent. You have to go to the right people. I was able to pull 83000 buy those three properties. And then let's say I got in a car accident. My family have three properties plus $2.7 million minus the 83000 That's a much better instrument. Plus, it's sitting there growing at 5% per year. After seven years, I actually have more money than where I put into it. It's continued to expand. I'm continuing to use that capital. So it's basically it's a bank account. In a way, I treat it like a bank account. It's a line of credit um, that has death benefit attached to it. So it benefits my family. I've got seven policies. Um, and it gets bigger than that. First wants to get bigger than that, I can show you the real depth of how we've done that. But for time, I won't go any further than that. When it comes to the trust, the reason I do the trust is because my trust buys everything. I buy every house in the name of the trust. I sign the contracts in the name of the trust. And if it, if the trust happens to have cash from my infinite banking, we'll pay cash, but I'll filter it through. My uh, like my uh, my money will come from my LLC. So my LLC will send the money to closing. The trust buys it, but the trust is going to sign a note in the deed of trust with my LLC as the lender. And then I go back and I refinance it individually and pay off my LLC, put the money right back in my bank account and do it again or in my, into my infinite banking or whatever that might be. So uh, it's it's built in a way for me to not own every, anything, but control everything. Yeah. So when the time comes that I hand everything off, my children are already involved in the family uh, assets. We have meetings as a trust. They're beneficiaries for the future. They know why I'm building it, what I'm building it for. They actually have access to it. Um, and so they hold each other accountable as far as people that are tenants to the trust. And if some, then if something happens to be, they know how it's already built and why it's built that way, and they'll continue to perpetuate it. There you go. All right, man. Um, I've loved everything you shared with us. Uh, it is time to jump into the quick question round, though. Are you ready? All right. Starts with books or any form of education. Could be, you know, YouTube channels, documentaries, whatever. Just need two recommendations: one for general life wisdom, and then one for real estate wisdom in the world. I wish to have the book sit in front of me. I usually, have it on my desk. It's called The Master Key System by Charles F. Hanel, the absolute greatest book ever written in the world, next to Scripture. It was a correspondence course in 1910. You write that right in for this course, pay your money, you get the lesson. You read the chapter, which is the lesson, every day for a week, and you do the mental exercise after you read the chapter every day for that week, till you master the mental exercise. Then you go on to the next one and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it till you master how to control your thoughts and focus your energy that which is focused on gets done that which does not get focused on does not get done it is by far the greatest thing you can ever do yeah, um, and that's by far, charles hanel right charles f hanel yep. yep amazing amazing book everybody should, should do that uh and this the next book uh i'd have to say was napoleon hills outwitting the devil you can't get better than that all right great great advice um moving on to the next question this is for your younger self so let's go back to the aaron who was uh, still working in the mines uh, way back in the 90s. Go back to him, look him in the eye, give him one piece of advice moving forward. Appreciate where you're standing at the moment. Uh, be uh, A friend of mine likes to say, be where your feet are. 
uh, and he wrote, he also wrote a book called, uh, uh, was it, um, I can't remember it. Uh, Alan Stein Jr. Look up his books. Amazing, amazing books. It's called Raise Your Game and Sustain Your Game. Very close friend of mine. But be where your feet are. Uh, there's a lot of things I didn't pay attention to when I was there. I was literally too busy looking way ahead instead of looking at where I was at. I was not paying attention to my current circumstances. There's a lot to be learned where you're standing right now. Yeah. Yeah. Really great advice. Hard advice, especially when you're younger um, to take in, but uh, good advice for any age. All right. Next question is for the U.S. It's a big place. A lot of opportunity out there. Give me the single metro you're most excited about investing in today. Little Rock, Arkansas, I would say. Wow. that's You are the first one to say Little Rock. <laughs> the reason I like Little Rock and just Arkansas as a whole uh, is just because the landlord-tenant laws are amazing. Um, it's, it's the best landlord tenant laws on the planet. So if you're into single family residences, that kind of stuff, contact me and my team, you know, AaronChapman.com. We can plug into the right people. We've got deals going out there, helping into investors, getting some amazing interest rates actually because of how we're structuring this stuff. Now, again, rates don't matter, but if you get a great rate, why the hell not? Right. Especially when the rest of the world's not getting that. So, uh, that I love Little Rock. I love, uh, and of course, uh, Alabama, lots of parts of it. I'm, I'm basically a South and the Midwest kind of a guy. I stay away from the big metros. I love the places where it's south and Midwest because it's just sustainable cash flow. Yeah. Um, really low price points too. Uh, Little Rock. 100%. Yeah. Arkansas. And great rent. And the people, I mean, you, they they just, they pay their bills. Yeah. Um, one downside, I have, I've uh, owned some properties in um, Hot Springs and I had a lot of property damage issues there. Um, it could be just because of the metro. It could be because of the, the specific, you know, corner that I was on. But um, yeah, I did find that to be an issue. That, uh, that I, I think does happen in a lot of markets. It depends also who your operator is and what where they're picking those properties up at. Yeah. All right. Next question is about finding deals. It all starts with uh, getting in contact with the seller. So what is your favorite way to generate leads and find good deals? Um, it would be basically set up your entire uh group of people you're going to work with, right? Your your team, if you will. You got to have the right team when it comes to the lender piece of it, the real estate piece of it, the property management piece, all these things. Sorting through and finding the right team, deals will find you when you're prepared to accept the deals. The other thing about finding a deal, it's not a matter of going there hunting and flipping over rocks to look for deals. It's setting your baselines. Too often people think that when they see the deal, they'll realize it. They don't. There are deals floating all over us. There's opportunity floating everywhere. We have nobody, but so few people have actually set what is an acceptable deal to them. Until you set an acceptable deal, what is your baseline? You have no idea if you have a deal in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's funny. Once you really get specific on what you're looking for, um, things do start popping up. Uh, but it's hard, especially in real estate, because there's so many ways to do real estate. You can you know, buy multifamily, you can buy self-storage, you can buy single family. And even within those, there's, you know, um, there's climate controlled self-storage, there's uh, drive up self-storage, there's a whole bunch of different categories within categories. Um, but the more specific you can get, um, but based on location, size, purchase price, all this stuff, uh, return, ROI, um, the, the better you're, the better or the more likely you'll actually reach your goal. Uh, so I feel like that's, that's pretty good advice. Um, which moves us to the next question. This is about lessons learned. Not every deal we engage with goes the way that we think it's going to go. A lot of times, you know, a wrench is going to get thrown into the mix and uh, it'll go a little sideways. So what is a deal? What is the biggest lesson learned from a deal that went a little sideways? 
Sunken cost fallacy, I think, is probably the biggest lesson that I had seen learned for people. They get involved in something, they spend money on appraisals and inspections and all these things, and they decide, hey, I, I already spent money on this, I'm just going to do it anyway. You're spending that money to determine whether or not you're going to buy it, not forcing yourself to buy it. Yeah. That, to me, is probably the first thing a person needs to needs to learn is because just because you spent money on something doesn't mean you have to own it. Mm-hmm. You need to be ready to spend money to avoid taking on an asset you shouldn't have. The other is understanding what is a good asset, what's not a good asset. Now, so just because you bought all those things and you've got that inspection, you still need to read the damn thing, right? You still need to know what you end up getting your hands on. So you buy these things not just so you're going through the motions, you buy them to give you information and data. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's, it's so hard, especially when you put, um, you know, I'm on the commercial side and it's really difficult when you put six months into a deal, you know, negotiating with the seller, getting out, you know, paying for feasibility studies, paying for trips to go out to the property and then coming to the realization like craft, this actually, this isn't a deal. Um, it's really hard to step away, but it is ultimately in your best interest. Um, and I liked how you put it, you know, you're paying to, for knowledge, you're paying for the opportunity to step away. Should it be a bad deal? Um, yeah, yeah. You're literally, a person should be going into those deals as like, is looking at it, say, give me information to make me step away from it. Mm-hmm. That's what you want. You want stuff that's going to make it. And if you can't find anything, then okay, now i got a deal. There's nothing here that's scaring me because it fits all my baselines. It fits all my requirements. But if it gives you any reason to walk away from that damn thing, the best thing you do is the deal you don't do. Absolutely. All right. Um, second to last question. This is about your strengths. Uh, we're all given gifts that we uniquely provide this world. So what is your Superman strength? Probably taking the most tactical of data and dumbing it down to a point where people can understand it. Um, when it comes to understanding mortgage rates and what drives them, I get deep into the weeds on my YouTube channel about the mortgage-backed securities and what drives the interest rates. It's not the treasuries. It's not all these other things. It's really the amount of capital flowing into the security itself. I watch it. day. I'm looking at it right now. And I, I map out things saying, mm, this is what I believe is going to happen. And so far, a lot of it does tend to happen. All right. Um, and that leads us to the very last question. This is for the listeners. I'm sure people want to reach out, get in contact with you. What can they expect when they reach out? And then where can they find you? So AaronChapman.com is the easiest way to find me. Or I always tell people, freaking just text me to my personal number, 602-291-3357. And I'm not kidding. That's my personal cell phone, 602-291-3357. Text me, say, I've heard you on the Real Estate Investing Club podcast. I'd love to talk. My assistant, Bree, will set up a time for us to talk. I have at least a half-hour conversation with every person who texts me. It might take a day or two to get set up because I want to know where you are, where you're going and how we can help facilitate that. There's this old saying, good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. Great way to learn on the grade school playground, shitty way to learn in investment real estate. Being as long as I've been in this and as much as I've done, I've seen thousands of people make decisions of their business, thousands of people screw it up and thousands of people get it right. Just because it looks good on paper doesn't mean it works in practicality. You need to get somebody who's seen it all and we've seen most of it. And that is AaronBChapman.com, correct? Either one, AaronChapman.com and AaronBChapman.com both work, goes to the same place. I had to get the B one first and tell this kid who was putting his hash little statistics, stop having his internet. And then I was able to take AaronChapman.com and make that one of them too. <laughs> nice. All right. Um, I will put those links in the show notes. So if y'all want to reach out to Aaron, just click a little more in the description. It'll pull down that full description in there. You can find his links. I also see the uh, information on the app. You can put that in there too. And if you open up the app, the upper left corner, there's a question mark. Go right to my website. Perfect. 
Well, yeah, that uh, that wraps it up. I uh, appreciate you hopping on the show. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you, man. Absolutely. For everybody who's here with us today, thank you guys for showing up. You are the reason we do this. So if you guys have any questions whatsoever, reach out to me, Gabe, at the realestateinvestingclub.com. If you want to support the show, all we ask, give us a like, subscribe, share, all that jazz. Other than that, I hope you guys have a great week. Have a good Christmas. five days away. Hope it's a good one for you. You and your family get together and enjoy it. Um, And we will see you on the next episode. All right. Before I officially sign off, I have a quick announcement to make. If you're interested in becoming a passive investor in one of my deals, my own company, Kaizen Properties, is looking for capital partners for our upcoming projects. We invest in what are known as recession-resistant assets, mainly self-storage facilities, mobile home and RV parks, and industrial properties. If you're interested in investing and would like to learn a little bit more about my company, our investing criteria, and some of the previous projects we've done, go to the Real Estate Investing Club podcast at therealestateinvestingclub.com and scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page. Click on the Invest With Us button. That'll pop up the investor form. Fill that out and we will reach back out to you as soon as we can. Or if you prefer a little bit more of a personal touch, you can reach out to me at gabe at therealestateinvestingclub.com. So really, that is it. Again, it was a pleasure hanging out with you guys during this episode, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.